Some people have the opinion that this episode of Sophie P. is not suitable for all ages due to language. I'd let my seven-year-old daughter listen. Everybody has something to hide And something to share With every pride it loosens up It's so obviously there I know you have a reason to go And a way to escape are listening to episode two of Sophie P. The Podcast. Sophie P. The Podcast is a podcast based out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and the purpose of this podcast is for locals to tell stories. I want people to listen to these stories and recognize that they are not alone in the world, that people that may be putting themselves in isolation may have an excuse to come out and share their own personal stories to help people around them to make the community a more comfortable, sustainable place for everybody in it. Today's episode is called Jeremy G. The reason it's called Jeremy G is because my friend Jeremy Ryan Good is going to be telling a story. Essentially, he is telling three stories. The main story is about how he persevered over 17 years to get himself into a major motion picture. During that 17 years, he encountered a lot of things in his life that could have caused him to pivot, that could have caused him to turn the lights off, that could have caused him major depression. And instead, what Jeremy did was he chose not to pivot. He chose to dissect and work through. He chose to make it a part of his life. And he chose to collect these stories and these memories and these actions and all these things that he can share with other people, that he can show people that you can get through these things to get to where you need to go and if you do you can be happy and you can be satisfied with yourself not only can you be satisfied with yourself but you can really enjoy life if you choose to we have such a wonderful opportunity as a collection of species to communicate and to learn more about each other and we should be talking to each other and we should be listening and we should be enjoying each other's company it's such a beautiful thing to sit across from somebody and watch them tell a story because you see things that you wouldn't normally see in your day-to-day bustle when i was watching jeremy talk i noticed things and you'll hear me talk a little bit more about that throughout this episode editing Jeremy's track was an interesting experience for me as well because I heard things that I didn't notice I now that I think about it like when Jeremy talks to me as he's passing me he does these small things that now I'm going to notice all the time and it's going to remind me that he's a person with an experience and a story to tell okay so basically I moved to Staten Island New York at age 26 25 uh I moved there to pursue acting I moved with my buddy Tim, and we moved into a house in Staten Island and shared it with two other guys. We were in South Beach, Staten Island, which is right at the base of the Verrazano Bridge. So we moved there, and I got a bartending job in the meantime, and I did a lot of auditioning. The one thing that I did while I was in New York, I found that after auditioning a lot, I needed to take a back step and get better at the craft of acting. What happened that brought you to that conclusion? I was going to a lot of auditions and getting decent feedback, but I realized at one point how difficult acting can be. 
And I knew that I wanted to do it and I've done plays before, but like I wanted to make sure that when I got my chance that I was ready for it. And not a lot of people do that, but I decided I'm going to find an acting class and I'm going to start to train. And I trained for about two years straight without doing much auditioning at all. What was the name of the acting class or where was it? Second Studio, I think it was called, with John Anthony. Uh, he was big uh, into the method acting approach, which as a teacher, he really breaks you down. I was um, heading to an acting class in the Upper East Side. I got on the subway and I, had to, I take the express train. There's a point where you have to get off the express train and switch over to the local stops. And then it's like three stops later, you get off. Well, I hit the, I missed that stop. So I went from the express stop to the next express stop. It was like 10 blocks away. Basically, I got off at the wrong spot. So I was like, I'm going to walk down, you know, 10 or 15 blocks. And uh, I'm walking and these guys are kind of following me. You know, it's a busy street. I'm in Spanish Harlem. Could just feel something happening. One of them just kind of walked in front of me, kind of. And he was saying something, I didn't really hear him, but he kind of forced me into the wall. <laughs> I'm like, looking at him like, oh shit, oh, this isn't good. And he could see my face. He could see me like kind of contemplating what was going on. And I was trying to figure out what move I was going to make. And the guy behind him actually was like, he pulled, he pulled a knife out. Because he could see me like, like, I was about to make a move. He made this, I remember this face. It was like, yeah, you don't want to fuck with us. Like, do what we tell you to do. And the other guys kind of got his forearm up towards my, my neck. So they ramshacked my bag and took everything in it, which was two acting books and my iPod. I made it to acting class, probably 20 minutes late, with a great story. That was an acting studio class. So when you're doing a studio, they throw you up on the stage and you kind of use what you have for the day. And that's what they teach you. Like, if you're sad or if you're depressed one day, you kind of use it. So, of course, they heard the story and they saw how upset I was and they threw me up on stage and I had to use that uh, as my in my scene however I could. So I feel like you can take that scenario and you can sort of reverse it. So instead of Jeremy having something that happens in his day-to-day life and then applying that to a scene in an acting class, Jeremy could very well think of a scene in an acting class and apply that situation or that response that he has to an actual situation that happens in real life. And I feel like we all do that to a certain degree. I know that I occasionally fantasize about how I would respond to things and I kind of go over some of the best and worst case scenarios to see how I would like to approach a situation that could potentially come up. I remember I used to go into my therapy sessions and I would talk to my therapist about somebody who I was having a difficult time with and we would come up with a number of ways for me to respond or approach this person. And not only did we come up with ways to respond to them and approach them, but we also sort of acted out what we thought they might do in response to us and then we allowed that to be a sort of basis for whether or not we use that approach. Okay, so it was, I hate to say this, but I think it was another Sunday. It was a rainy, rainy Sunday, like very rainy. I worked at a bar on the beach in Staten Island, New York. It was raining pretty good. We were dead, so we're all just kind of standing around. I'm looking around and like, this guy keeps walking by in a yellow slicker jacket in the rain. But he kept walking by. And I'm like, what is he doing? Like, who walks on the beach on the boardwalk? Like, maybe you take a walk, but like back and forth. This went on for an hour. And I'm like, he's doing something. And then I saw him, he goes over to the gazebo and he sits down and he's like watching, he's just looking out in the ocean. So I'm sitting there 
and I'm talking to my buddy Tim, and I'm looking down there. I'm like, look at that, dude. I'm like, what is that? And and he's we're looking down the beach. It looked like a, a big dr- chunk of driftwood, but it, 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 it was odd the way that it was kind of whispering in on the water. This was probably right. This was probably around one in the afternoon, right after the lunch, and we were just completely dead at this point. So I'm like, dude, that is like, what is that? He's like, ah, dude, it's probably driftwood. I'm like, no, that looks like a mannequin. That has an arm. And he's like, no, dude. I'm like, yeah, let's go down and look because I'm I'm very intrigued right now. So me and Tim walk out to the boardwalk. We told them we're going down to do this because the manager was like, well, okay, well, whatever, go ahead. We get about 20 feet away and realize what this is. And it was a dead body. It was a woman, probably in her late 30s. Um, we're on a podcast right now, which we were on a TV show because I could show you the face that this woman had. Basically, the, the eyes were rolled back. It looked very distraught. It was very, and here's the here's the kicker. She had a rope tied around her neck. So we freaked out. Tim starts grabbing her arms to pour out. I said, leave her the fuck alone. Don't touch it. Obviously, she was dead, but we didn't know what to do. So I ran back up and called the cops. In about five minutes, there's helicopters flying overhead, landing on the beach right where we were at. They pull her out of the water. You know, we're standing there. I go back up to work. They're like, well, don't go too far because we want to ask you about how you found this. So they come in and then I'm starting to sit there thinking about something. You know, and I'm like, that guy that was walking on the boardwalk, he was looking for something. He wouldn't just sat out in the pouring rain for hours. Then I said to Tim, what if he was, what if he knew, what if he was part of this and knew that she would be washing up? Because this is the spot on Staten Island where bodies wash up if they're dumped in the Hudson River. So they're going to come out and they always come, like the way the current works, they roll right up at this point in the beach. It's happened before at this same spot. So I'm like, maybe he knew about this. Uh, so all of a sudden, like, I'm telling the cops about this. It was like, I don't even know. It was the FBI or the special crime unit or whatever it was. They go out and they start questioning the guy. I'm like, I'm going home because I don't want this guy knowing that we just said this. Because we're in Staten Island, New York. You get killed for shit like that. I'm like, I'm out of here. So we left. And it really bothered me for weeks. I was very... Something was just... To see a dead body like that is very life-altering at the moment especially at that moment this was a point in jeremy's career where he really could have chosen to go in a different direction but he didn't choose to go in a different direction jeremy chose to use this and to store this experience away in order for him to apply that experience and his reactions and his interpretation throughout his life as jeremy was going back and telling that story i noticed a couple of things And I had mentioned earlier in this episode that I was going to uh, point out a few things. So at the tail end of that, Jeremy's speech began to slow down. And I know that from your perspective as the listener, it is much different than my perspective as the listener and the watcher. Uh, Because I was sitting right across from Jeremy watching him explain this. And there was a very interesting thing that happened that went along with what happened with his voice. So listening back, his voice slowed and it dropped his tone went lower and he spoke slower and there were a few pauses and throat clearings that happened that I had to cut out because it was just a lot and as I was doing that I remember watching Jeremy while that was happening and he did this really interesting thing where he grabbed the side of his glasses he had his elbow on the table and he reached up and he dropped his head just far enough so that his forearm would extend from the table to the side of his glasses and he just kind of 
held him there for a second, and I couldn't see his eyes, but my imagination was leading me to believe that he was most likely looking down. And I think when he was looking down, I think Jeremy was reliving his responsibility of that moment. I think that he had somebody close to him that tried to pull this body out of the water, and that probably caused Jeremy a lot of fear and discomfort in that moment. And not only in that moment, but every time he tells the story, I would imagine that he's feeling that again. And every time he tells the story, Jeremy has such a huge responsibility to himself and to his listener to make sure that he responds appropriately and that he continues to regulate his emotions, even though he's subsequently back in that moment. It seems to me that all of this is incredibly necessary for Jeremy to be a successful actor, and not only to be a successful actor, but for Jeremy to be a successful person. As Jeremy goes throughout his life, he's constantly bombarded with moments where he needs to make a decision. It's something that happens to us day after day after day. We just have so many decisions that we make, and a lot of them are pretty subconscious, and it would be nice, and I would encourage people to be more conscious of their decisions, as I'm trying to do, and as I think would make life not necessarily more interesting, although definitely more interesting, but it would continue to teach us how to take responsibility for ourselves and be aware of the decisions that we make. If we can start to catch ourselves in the morning, before we actually open our eyes, but we're still awake, and we can make that decision to keep our eyes closed for just another 30 seconds, we can start to gain an awareness of the subconscious decisions that happen throughout our lives and throughout the day. That level of awareness, I would imagine, is incredibly essential for Jeremy's success, for his continued success and for the confidence that he needs to have for his future in order for him to continue to persevere. We know that Jeremy is in a major motion picture now. We know that Jeremy has worked hard to get there. We know that he has support of his friends and his family, although I'm sure sometimes that support wasn't always there when he necessarily needed it. So Jeremy needed these experiences. He needed to learn how to validate himself and he needed to learn how to fish his confidence out of the deepest, darkest, dirtiest parts of the murky pond and clean it off and dangle it and hang it and dry it and have it there for him when he needed it. I would imagine that Jeremy has really developed a lot of amazing skills from this journey. And I am personally very inspired to continue along my path and to continue to persevere, which kind of seems to be the theme of this whole thing that Jeremy brought to the table is perseverance. He's worked hard, and I know he's going to continue to work hard, and I'm proud to be his friend, and I'm proud to listen to Jeremy, and I hope you feel as inspired as I do. I was dealing with some drug issues, so um, that springboards me when I got out of rehab the last time I got out, which I've been clean ever since. I was in a a halfway house with um, a guy that one of my roommates was a producer in New York City. I moved back to Pennsylvania. He moved back to New York, and uh, probably about age 32, he calls me up and says, hey, you still acting? I said, yeah. He's like, I got something for you. If you want to help uh, you know, in development, uh, pre-production, there's probably a role in it for you. And I said, okay, cool. Let's do it. So when he said there was a role in it for you, what did he mean by that? Uh, it meant like he can get me a part in the movie as a speaking part. So I went up. We set a lunch to meet with the producers of the film, the director of the film, the writer of the film, and the writer happened to be an actor as well. And uh, we met at this little place in New York City. So basically, it was the producers at one end of the table and 
myself, Jay Alimo, uh, director, and Brian, uh, he's an actor, director as well. We talked creatively back and forth the whole lunch uh, while the producers kind of sat around the table with their cell phones, which is a typical, what I've found to be a typical producer in, in this film world. They sat around with their cell phones doing what? <clears throat> I don't know. Emailing, taking care of business. So we talked about the film and uh, I was really interested in it, but I wanted to get the contact information for Jay and Brian, who are the two creatives. And the producers would not allow that. We couldn't make that connection because they wanted to stay the middlemen, you know. So I got home from New York and I'm like, all right, that was a great lunch and all. I'm not sure where this film's going to go, if it's going to happen or not. But I said, I want to find out who these two guys are and I want to connect because we had a great conversation at lunch. It was amazing. Super creative chats. We got, we were on the same level. And um, so I started doing some digging. Um, I ended up finding an email address for Brian and um, I emailed him. I was like, Hey, Brian, it's Jeremy. We had lunch together a couple days ago. Rob wouldn't let me get your number. Five minutes later, he gets back to me and says, dude, I want to get in touch with you too. They wouldn't let me get your contact information. I'm so glad you found me. Let's let's get drinks sometime. Let's chat it out. I came up to New York. Um, I met Brian. We went out for some drinks and some uh, appetizers. Talked about future projects that he has specifically. We, you know, talked about one specific project. And I said, I'm interested in this. I want to help if I can. And he's like, absolutely. About a week after that, Jay, the other guy that was at the table, talked to Brian. And Brian's like, yeah, I talked to Jeremy. So Jay's like, oh, let me get his number. So Jay called me. Interesting piece of this long story short, I became friends with both of them. They became enemies almost. This specific film was Brian, and I was with him since the beginning. We developed the film. He started writing the script about a month after I met him. I helped with some of the creative thing. I helped him raise money. I did a lot of stuff in the in the, in the development phase of the film. This took like four years in the making. It's finally being shot. It's we're we're shooting in Toronto in May. So yeah, there's no rules, man. That was the biggest thing I learned. You can do it any way you do it. I had training i auditioned over and over and over again and heard people say you suck and not cast you but i knew that i i was talented in it and i kept going and i got this opportunity and we are now at the point four years later where we're about to film and my character i can talk about my character it's uh, i'm playing a um like a grease monkey um Named Mick Jr. Mick Jr.? M-I-C-K? Yeah, Mick Jr. Mick as in man? Mick man. <laughs> Mick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am playing that, and it's a great character piece. It's only, I'd say, total maybe 12 lines with two separate scenes, but they're memorable. He wrote them specifically to be memorable for me. That's the cool thing about Brian. He really wanted me to to shine and be he knew my my path and my struggle with the the industry and he was like it was like throwing a bone you know this episode of sophie p was brought to you by fox duck fox duck is a screen printer and graphic designer in lancaster pennsylvania they offer high quality custom design work by professional artists and designers as well as premium screen printed apparel fox duck has a heavy focus on fair trade eco-conscious sustainable business practices visit fox duck at www.foxduck.com that's www.foxduck.com the two animals folks fox duck fuck it fox duck it
Today's episode was recorded and produced by me. The music was written and recorded by me. If you are interested in sharing a story on this podcast, please reach out to me, sophiepthepodcast at gmail.com. You can also send me a message on Instagram. I am there from time to time posting things. Thank you for listening.